week on the Grimerica Show, the guys talk with Dr. Philip Metzger, a pioneer in NASA space mining program. Hello, guys. Welcome back to Grimerica. Um, we've got a great guest tonight. Uh, the interview ran quite a bit longer than expected, um, so we're going to keep the intro pretty short and sweet. But, of course, with me, as always, is Graham. How's it going, Graham? I'm doing really good. Pretty excited. So, obviously, the big news is this Edward, Edward Snowden fella. Yep. NSA leaks doesn't surprise me at all. What surprises me is how the, uh, the mainstream media is actually covering this. I think it's kind of weird how a 29-year-old kid that uh, with li- that fairly inexperienced, I, th- I don't think he worked there more than, uh, more than a couple of years, if that, and uh, he's got access to this information, seems weird to me. I don't know. I think something's up. I don't know. I think that's part of the point of it is is the fact that anybody in that uh, intelligence community can get access if they want to anybody. So, um, you know, that's that's the point. If anybody wants a really balanced um, view and opinion on this, check out Dan Carlin's Common Sense podcast. He's the one, you know, political podcast that I like. And he's been talking about this for years and he's not conspiratorial in any way. He's kind of mainstream. He's independent, and the government and the and the political establishment takes this guy seriously. They listen to his podcast, and so do I. And he's got a really good take on what's going on with this. I think it's a uh, smokescreen. Well, uh, well, um, Adobe backdoors and gets in bed with Apple. Because what was it? It was just recently. It was just recently that. Uh, Adobe CTO Kevin Lynch left for Apple after basically battling him um, for years over Flash and whatnot, and all of a sudden he's gone to uh, Apple right after Steve Jobs dies. And Steve Jobs, who was so adamantly against uh, Flash on his devices, looks like uh, Adobe's going to sneak in there after all. And that basically puts Adobe on will put Adobe on almost every device on the planet. And Adobe is software that we already know is tracking our information and selling it to advertising companies and whatnot. So who else, who knows who else they're willing to sell it to? So how do you, how do you relate that to this being uh, some sort of snow job by Snowden? I don't know. It just seems that's how they're working it. Look over (laughs) here. Well, don't, don't pay attention to this. Pay attention to this. Huh. I'm telling you about. Yeah, but but they're saying don't pay attention to this when it's probably one of the ten biggest uh, news stories of of uh, our lifetimes. Yeah, maybe, maybe. You know, I mean, they're they're breaking in a, out a lot of stuff on this, right? I mean, he he's gonna get uh, he's probably gonna get the book thrown at him here, right? They're gonna. Make I don't know. Him- I heard Russia offered him uh, asylum. Russia's thinking of granting him asylum or something like that. They express something uh, down those lines. Maybe that'll get the... Yeah, who knows. Anyway, this is interesting times we're living in. Oh, yeah, we should also mention we were on uh, the Nat and and Marie show last night. Yep, yep. That's a podcast about web culture, I guess. Yeah, so they had us on. It was a great time. You guys should check that out. Uh, We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, I think if you just go on... uh, iTunes and search Nat and Marie, you'll find it. But yeah, we were on there. I think it'll be episode seven. So, but once again, we'll link to that in the show notes, and you guys can check it out. It was a pretty fun time. I had a blast. 
Yeah, I hope we didn't freak them out too much with some of the UFO talk and all that. <laughs> uh, they took it in stride. Yeah. Um, so you wanted to talk about some new book you were reading or something? No, no, it's a, it's an old one. So I was at the movies the other night, and I saw the uh, preview for Ender's Game, which was uh, an, like probably my favorite sci-fi novel by en- uh, Orson Scott Card. And uh, I remember this because I listened to it on audible.com, and it was my favorite narrators. I got to mention their names. Stefan Rudnicki and, uh, or- and Scott Brick. These two guys, like I would almost listen to an audiobook if these guys uh, narrated. They're that good, and uh, so I listened to Ender's Game a few years back, and I remember them talking about how they can turn this uh, fantastic novel into a movie, and uh, it's finally here. So it looks pretty good. I hope it's good, but check out like any of Orson Scott Card's work on Audible.com, and the narrators are great. And I just think uh, that's a fascinating way to to read a book. Oh yeah, so. So go go to Gray America, click on Audible, and get your book that way. That'll help us out. Yeah, that's that's how you can sp- support Gray America. So, speaking of movies, uh, Silver Screen Saucers, Robbie Graham coming up, um, coming up next. That's this weekend, right? Yeah, that's that's this weekend. That's going to be our first across the pond, uh, as they say, interview. So that'll be pretty cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about that. I saw After Earth too. I thought that was a pretty good movie. Did you see it? I didn't see it yet. Yeah. yeah was it, was it good? Pretty, yeah, I liked it. Jaden and Will. Yeah, I'm not too picky though. I like the I like that sci-fi adventure type movies. Apparently, Will uh, uh, made that himself or wrote it or something. So. Are they coming out with the? Uh, are they coming out with like another? What's that one where he's the last person alive? Oh yeah. That was Will Smith in that one, right? Yeah. With a dog, him and his dog? Yeah, him and his dog, and his dog gets killed. Oh, I can't remember what that was. Yeah, that was actually pretty good. Yeah, I thought I heard, I heard they were coming out with a prequel to that or something. Legend. But, I Am Legend? I Am Legend. Yeah, that's it. Um, but I suppose we might as well get right to it. The interview ran quite a bit longer than usual, and we wanna, we're want to we trying to keep these things under two hours, so... Um, we might as well jump right into her. What do you say, Gren? You got anything yeah. else? No, I think that's it. Let's just do this. It's a fascinating interview. All right, guys. We're going to be back real soon uh, for the Robbie Graham show anyway. So enjoy the interview, and we'll be back after uh, after she's wrapped up. doing excellent i'm looking forward to talking to philip metzger tonight, metzger tonight. yeah that's right we've got uh, dr philip metzger uh, a physicist and a planetary scientist uh from uh from nasa at kennedy space center and, and we're we're real glad to have him how's it going tonight uh dr dr metzger it's going great and you can call me phil but i'm really glad to be here glad to talk about this topic tonight thank you 
Yeah, so it seems like nowadays uh, space mining is, is all the rage. But uh, I don't think, I think like uh, when, when, the average, when the average person pictures it, they picture like Bruce Willis landing on an asteroid and, and uh, you know, saving the world or mining, uh, same, same type thing. But in reality, we're, we're looking at, at an entirely different process, isn't that right? Yeah, there wasn't a lot of real science in the Bruce Willis mission. <laughs> it was entertaining, but wasn't very realistic. I think the what is the optimal size is around seven meters. Well, that depends uh, what the what you plan to do. If you're planning to bring back an asteroid into Earth orbit entirely, the entire asteroid then it would need to be in that ballpark, something smaller than 10 meters. And there are a couple reasons for that. One is that it takes a lot less energy to bring a small one back, a lot less fuel, and therefore you can launch a smaller spacecraft with less fuel. So it makes it a much more affordable mission to bring back the asteroid. The second reason is if you bring one back that's too big, there is the risk of crashing it into the earth. And, uh, you know, if it's small, if it's below 10 meters, there's no risk because it'll burn up in the atmosphere entirely and it can't hurt anybody. Yeah. So, I, that sounds better than, uh, than the alternative, at least till, at least for the first couple. Yeah, I agree. So, so we're jumping right in here. You guys are talking about like lassoing yeah, asteroids and yeah, bringing we should them get... into, into earth's orbit. Like, does that not affect would that not affect the Earth at all, having these, you know, asteroids uh, roaming around in the orbit? Oh, uh, not really. Not in any measurable way, because, for one thing, the Earth's orbit is constantly being changed all the time anyways. There's perturbations from other planets. There's um, the fact that there's dust falling on the Earth all the time. Tens of thousands of tons of space dust fall on the Earth every year. And there's actually a net loss of mass from the Earth every year because the solar wind is blowing away so much of the atmosphere and there's hydrogen escaping to space. So the Earth is losing mass every year. So bringing a, a rock, even a seven meter rock, is really negligible compared to all the other things that are going on. We're losing mass? That's yeah. terrifying. Yeah, tens of thousands of tons of mass disappearing into space every year. Wow. Really? And it's not replenished in any way? No, no, it's a net loss. Oh. That's a and when I say net loss, I mean that's because we're uh we're gaining tens of thousands of tons of dust, solid matter raining down on the earth, but there's more hydrogen and helium escaping than there is solid matter coming down. So yeah, it's it's kind of weird. Also, you know, the uh the earth is slowing down because of tidal forces with the sun. So the earth has been its rotation has been slowing down for the entire history of the earth. And uh the moon is getting farther away because the earth is distorted by the gravity of the moon uh and the uh earth as it spins, the uh the distortion of the earth has to constantly change to always face towards the moon. It's like a, a it's like a, instead of a slim, a circular water drop, it's like an elliptical one, but 
is a little bit of a lag. You know, the, the, it's not longest in the direction directly towards the moon. It's always a little bit off because it's spinning and it never quite exactly points right towards the moon. And because of that, the longest direction of the Earth is not exactly in line with the moon. And so it's pulling the moon forward. And so it's whipping the, the moon further and further out from the Earth. And that's making the moon get farther from the Earth. So there are all these things going on that are not not so constant. You know, you think that it's constant, but really space is always changing. That that makes it even kind of uh, more special when you think about things like uh, a solar eclipse, because not only is it uh, remarkable that the moon and the sun are so so symmetrical in the sky, um, you've also got the aspect that we're here on the Earth for this period of time that we're able to see it. Yeah, that is pretty cool. You, what you're talking about is, although the the sun is vastly bigger than the moon, they are at proportional distances from the Earth so that they look the same size. Yeah, I think it's like Therefore, 400 times. Or... Um, I don't know the numbers. It's like 100 million miles to the sun and it's 280,000 to the, I should know this, you know, but it's, no, yeah, I think that sounds right. It's like 400 to one, 400 to one, I think. So, um, but yeah, it's pretty, pretty cool because we have solar eclipses or yeah, solar eclipses where the, the moon is just light, slightly larger than the sun on some occasions, just slightly smaller than the sun on other occasions, depending on the season. And so you can have a ring of fire around the moon during the eclipse on some occasions, or sometimes the moon just perfectly covers up the sun. And this only happens during a brief period of history. Uh, there's a period of a couple 10,000 years that that's true. But for the entire prehistory of the Earth and for all time afterwards, that won't be true again. So it's kind of cool that we're living here right now. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Have you ever seen an eclipse? Oh, yeah, sure. I've seen lunar and solar eclipses several times. I think I remember seeing one when I was a kid. My grandma, like, uh, my grandma gave us, like, just this little, like, the welding lens, but, like, just the lens, the little four-by-two little piece of uh, glass, and she had us going out in the yard looking over your little, because that's when we had just figured out that you weren't supposed to look at it. Yeah, well, I remember when I was in second grade, the teacher told us how to make the box where you have the hole in one end of the box and you're, you put your head in it and you look at the opposite end and it projects the <laughs> picture of the sun on the inside of the box. So I remember as a second grader doing that, that was my first eclipse. But uh, yeah, so uh, the, the solar system is not really constant and on really long time scales, the sun's eventually going to get too hot and burn the earth up and the, uh, um, there's all kinds of things that aren't going to stay the same. So bringing a, a small asteroid into Earth orbit is really not a biggie in, in the big scheme of things. So let's let's back up a couple minutes uh, or a couple secs here. So you, uh, how long have you worked for NASA then? And what, and what do you actually do there? Okay, so I've, I've worked for NASA my entire career since college. And that's been all, that's, what, since 1985. Wow. So what is that? 28 years now. And for the first 10 years, I worked on the space shuttle. I was on the launch team and I worked on navigation and communication systems. My bachelor's degree was in electrical engineering. And then uh, I moved to the space station program 
and I worked on that for about seven years, again, on the communication systems. And around that time, I decided to go back to school and work on a PhD in physics. And I focused on the physics of granular materials, and in particular, lunar and Martian and other extraterrestrial soil. And so I finished that PhD up, and I, while I was working on the PhD, I was still working out at the Space Center, and I transferred into a physics lab where we were developing technologies to support a wide variety of things. For example, we were trying to develop technologies to scare vultures away from the launch pad because on one of the shuttle launches, the shuttle ran into a vulture and killed it. But the vulture, if it had hit the wing of the shuttle, it could have ruined the mission and killed the astronauts. And so uh, it's really a bad thing when you're launching into a bunch of vultures circling around the launch pad. So we had to come up with a way to repel vultures, but because the Space Center is a wildlife refuge, we couldn't hurt the vultures. And so we were looking at all kinds of crazy ideas like microwaves and <laughs> lasers and loud noises and smells and all kinds of stuff. So uh, we were working on all, all kinds of crazy physics to affect vultures and get ice off of the shuttle and um, really cool projects. So I finally finished my PhD and then I started a lab developing technologies to work with the soil on the moon and Mars. And now that lab has grown into the Swamp Works, the Kennedy Space Center Swamp Works. And we develop robotics for space mining. And I've been doing this for a little over a decade now, I guess, to make it add up to 28 years. Wow. You, did, you, guys, didn't, you guys didn't happen to name that after Skunk Works, did you? Oh, what would give you that idea? <laughs> so I guess that's like the closest thing, the closest thing to a course in Xeno archaeology you could get at the same time. Xeno archaeology. <laughs> so that's like archaeology on other planets? Yeah. 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 It's this new uh this new science that these guys are trying to start up, you know. Okay. Well, you know what? There's actually I've met space archaeologists and um because I was working on the project to develop guidelines on how to land on the moon so that we don't damage the Apollo sites. When we worked on this, we brought in a, a group. Well, I didn't run the, uh, I didn't lead the team. I did, I did help to get NASA to start the effort. And that's kind of a cool story in itself. If you want to talk about that. Yeah, sure. for sure. But, but um, so yeah, so uh, if you want to divert, I'll, I'll go down that rabbit trail. Remember to bring me back to the Xeno archaeologist. But, okay. Yeah, we will for so, sure. So I was doing research on how rocket exhaust blows soil because that's my specialty. How does how to work with the soil on, on other planets? And as I was doing the research, I started to realize that the blast effects of landing on the moon were actually much worse than people thought back in the Apollo program. It, but you wouldn't know that because when you're landing, you just see this dust under you and you don't know how fast it's going. So we started to realize this dust is actually traveling a couple kilometers per second. And it's actually a lot more soil that's blowing than we realized. And so it's like a sandblaster on steroids. So I started worrying. Google had sponsored this X Prize to get people to get non-governmental organizations to try to land on the moon travel 500 meters and send back high def video. And that's awesome. You know, I'm totally in favor of doing that. And I really, I really want these companies to go visit the Apollo sites 
especially because we want them to send back video of the Apollo sites and we want to get data from the Apollo sites. But I was just worried that when they do this, it's going to be chaos. They're going to be landing in the middle of the Apollo site or too close to it and sandblasting it. And they're going to be landing all around it and sandblasting it from all directions. And if you do that, if you're going to scour the hardware with your highly corrosive lunar soil at high velocity, then you're going to be destroying the scientific value of that hardware because it's been sitting there on the moon for 40 years now collecting a sample of the lunar environment. It's been collecting cosmic radiation effects, solar radiation effects. It's been collecting dust so that we can study the natural dust transport on the moon. It's been studying, it's been collecting micrometeoroid impacts. And so we could, and, and also the materials, how do materials survive in the lunar environment? So we would like to go back and get data on all of these processes. This is the, the Apollo site is the, the six lunar Apollo sites are some of the best witness plates to the environment of the inner solar system that there are. And so I highly support the Google Lunar X Prize and what they're trying to do. I just didn't want it to be chaos. So I started trying to get the attention of decision makers, trying to say, hey, let's go write some guidelines on how people should land on the moon. But nobody wanted to do it. Everybody was worried that it was going to involve legal questions that were too difficult to answer because nobody owns the moon and nobody has the right to tell anybody what you can do there. And so I I realized we were running out of time and these Google Lunar X Prize competitors, they're really very altruistic. I, I know quite a few of these people that are on these teams that lead the teams and they all want to do what's best for humanity. And they wanted to go visit the Apollo sites without damaging them. So they were starting to ask me, how do we do this? And so I wanted headquarters to give me permission to tell them how. And so I couldn't get enough attention at headquarters because we were very busy trying to figure out what to do in NASA as the Constellation program was being canceled. And then I had the opportunity to go fly on a reduced gravity flight for one of my experiments. And I needed some team members to go fly. This is on the Vomit Comet. Actually, to be technically correct, it's it was the Weightless Wonder. But uh, everybody still calls it the Vomit Comet outside of NASA. <laughs> so I, I got the idea to invite somebody from NASA headquarters to be on my team. And it would be a great opportunity for him to learn about the effects of lunar gravity, to feel it, to understand it for his own benefit as an NASA manager. And it would give me a couple of days of his time without any distractions. And so he agreed and he came and flew on the, the vomit comet with me. And so I talked it up during that time and said, you know, we really need to deal with the Google Lunar X Prize thing. And so he went off to headquarters and pulled a team together and so then it all came about. So they they ended up pulling in some space archaeologists to be on this team. And I had no idea there was any such thing as a space archaeologist. But there actually are. There are college professors who focus on this. And they they claim that the six Apollo sites are among the most important archaeological sites in the entire human sphere. Uh, even as important as the Greek pyramids or Sumeria 
or Machu Picchu down in uh, Peru. I had no idea that they thought about it that way. But when they started explaining it to me, they said, well, you know, this is where humanity first stepped onto another world. And that's pretty important. Yeah. So, is. Yeah. So I was worried about protecting the, the Apollo sites so that we wouldn't damage the data. And they wanted they didn't even want NASA to visit the Apollo sites because they wanted it to be in perfect, pristine condition. And so they agreed, well, you know, to be reasonable, we do need to visit them somewhat. So let's come up with some reasonable guidelines that are going to preserve it but still allow us to get data. And so we came up with these guidelines. Uh, we had a, a big team working on different aspects of it. I wrote the parts of the guideline that describe how, how to prevent your rocket exhaust from damaging the sites. Other people worked on how do you drive a rover into the Apollo site so that your wheels don't mess everything up. Other people did research on what are all the different materials at the Apollo sites. And it was quite a big effort. Uh, that was published about a year and a half, maybe two years ago. So it's out on the internet now. You could look up the guidelines. Phil, that was that's a fascinating story. Um, <clears throat> I get this feeling you're this pioneer, um, you know, making making these changes and decisions like that affect humanity. It's you know on the edge of this uh, space exploration. It must be so exciting for you. Well, we're definitely trying to make a difference. It's uh, it's a lot of work. It's hard, very, very hard work. So, uh, but we, that, that's my goal. I, I've been uh, aiming towards trying to make a difference for humanity. And uh, I should mention that in order to try to help inspire young people, just to let, let them know that there was never a time that anybody came to me and said, we want somebody to do this kind of work. It was very entrepreneurial, and I just decided about 10 years ago that I wanted to do this. And so it's been a, an entrepreneurial effort of creating the job and then getting NASA to agree to let me do this kind of work. So young people need to realize if they want to do something in the world and make a difference, you can't sit around waiting for a, a job application to show up in the newspaper and then go off and apply for the job. If you want to do something that makes a big difference in the world, you have to go off and make it happen yourself. So there was, there was no such thing as the swamp works at the Kennedy space center. There was no <laughs> such thing as the granular mechanics lab, That's the, the lab that I created. And what happened was I wanted to work on this. And so I went to school and got a degree in it, and then I started writing proposals to get money, and I finally convinced managers to give me some money to let me do this kind of work. And then eventually uh, there, there came about some money that needed to be spent to buy equipment, and so I got a chance to buy the equipment that I needed to do this kind of work. And then I didn't have a room to keep the equipment in, and then one of the ladies at the Space Center asked me in the hallway one day, hey, have you ever found a room to keep your equipment in? And I said, no, I hadn't. And she goes, come on, Phil, let me show you how this works. <laughs> and she took me to a doorway and looked in the window of the door, and it was an empty room. And she read the phone number on the door and called the manager of that room and 
promised the manager that if he let me in the room, I would be out in six months. I just needed to borrow it for six months. And she talked the guy into giving me the combination to the door. <laughs> and so she opened the door and said, congratulations, you now have a lab. Just don't ever go out of the room and they'll never get you out. <laughs> and so that was literally how my lab started. And sure enough, it was just like she predicted. They never asked me to leave. And then pretty soon they decided, well, gee, Phil's got this lab. We need to make it an official lab. And so it became a lab. And then it was one thing after another. And so by doing hard work and trying to give NASA what they need and what they want and helping my managers to be successful so that I'm producing things that my management can then show their management and say, look what our group did. This is great work. By doing that hard work, then it led to one opportunity after another. And eventually other people started partnering up with me. And I should mention Rob Mueller. He and I went in on this lab together right at the very beginning. After I got the room, I said, Rob, do you want to be a part of this lab? And so he and I co-founded the Granular Mechanics and Regular Operations Lab at the Kennedy Space Center. That's, and, that's great. Yeah. That's so inspiring. And, and you must have seen this whole field of your Granular Space Lab change over the last decade immensely. Like now you're talking about like 3D printing uh, soils and making metals from this stuff. I mean, would you even have thought about that uh, 10 years ago? No, no, that you're exactly right. These are things that have developed over the years and we've we've expanded the line of business. From the very beginning, I was working on how rocket exhaust affects soil. That was my specialty. And Rob Mueller that I who I partner with, his specialty was excavation. How do you do digging on the moon or Mars oh. or asteroids? And so we both had a focus on extraterrestrial soil. And we just said, that's what we want to focus on. That's our line of business. How do we work with the soil? And so we we keep asking ourselves, what else can you do with soil? What else can you do with it? And well, you can build with it. You can make buildings. You can get metal out of it. And we've tried to come up. We, you can make heat shields out of it. They recently, a couple of guys in my lab recently did a project showing how to build a, a reentry heat shield out of soil. And they tested it in an arc jet facility out at the NASA Ames Space Center. And they showed that you can actually land on Mars and save millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars by making your heat shield out of dirt, out of Phobos, the, the lower of the two Martian moons, rather than bringing the heat shield with you from Earth. So these uh, crazy ideas just came about by saying, what else can you do with dirt? So... Uh, and because I, I found a lot of like-minded people to partner with, we've been able to grow the organization. And now we've got 45 people working in my lab. That's uh, including part-timers. We have enough funding for 20-something people to be full-time employed in the lab. So it grew from just two of us 10 years ago to now we've got 21 people employed. And we're developing space mining robots. We run a space mining competition that has occurred for four years in a row. And I really need to make sure that I give the credit for most of this to Rob Mueller. Rob is an amazing person and uh, he's a brilliant technologist. And a lot of these ideas, almost all of these ideas have been Rob's. 
So um, I've really enjoyed partnering with him on all of this. Maybe we could have Rob on the show sometime. That would be that would be great as well. So I guess in in essence, you and yourself and and Rob Mueller are basically the godfathers of of space mining. <laughs> well, I wouldn't claim that. No, <laughs> um, maybe Rob is. I would <laughs> I would give that to Rob for sure. Um, but you know, space mining is I think the most exciting part of what we're doing right now because there's so much interest in space mining. And I've lost count, but there are seven or eight or nine space mining companies now. So, in fact, just today I received emails from either the CEO or the chief technologist of three different space mining companies. And these are the big name ones that you've heard about. So we're really excited to be partnering with these companies and developing technologies that they might be, they might be interested in licensing. And uh, so we're looking at this as a partnership, a government, private and academic partnership to develop these technologies to help take our country and take humanity into the solar system. And now uh, I see today that the, that the, that new telescope is 90 percent funded. So we've even got the, the public said sector kicking in. Yeah, absolutely. And I should have mentioned that I'm a big believer in the citizen aspect of all of this too. So crowdsourcing, crowdfunding, citizen science. And um, that's, in fact, that's why we do this, this space mining competition every year. That's a crowdsourcing effort. My lab gets enough funding to build one space mining robot or one space mining apparatus per year, in addition to a, a lot of other technologies that we develop. But we all, we only get enough funding to do one space mining technology per year, pretty much. But through this robotics mining competition, we get about 50 different universities all around the world involved building space mining robots. And they bring their robots to the Kennedy Space Center for this, this really exciting competition. And they have a great time. They have a lot of fun. They learn a lot. We've got sponsors like Caterpillar which is there interviewing the students to hire some of them and Caterpillar is getting benefit from it. But my benefit is I'm in the lunar arena wearing a bunny suit and a respirator right there in the dust from all the regolith where the excavators are, are testing and I'm taking pictures and I'm taking notes. And instead of having just one robot per year, I get to see 50 robots during that week of lunabotics. And I learn more during the week of lunabotics about machine, about robotic interactions with soil than I do in the other 51 weeks. So it's been a tremendous success. We've learned a whole lot about the practical engineering aspects of space mining through it. And so there's an example of citizen involvement in real space exploration. These students who are going off and building these robots have had a very measurable, very real impact on the state of the art in space mining. Yeah, that's amazing. I guess that's that's the best strategy to have is just bring the best in the world to your to your backyard. I've heard Peter Diamandis talk about how the world is being revolutionized by the internet and he was talking about how the internet is spreading into the remaining parts of the world. And the way he said it is that we've got, I forget how many billion additional mines coming online in the next 10 years. 
and this this huge influx of brain power taking part in in the human technological development is going to be revolutionary according to peter and i think he's exactly right there's a lot of power by involving more minds in the process einstein has that famous quote that i don't remember exactly how it goes but i think it was imagination is more important than perspiration or something like that oh you know what i've got the poster on my wall i just can't read it from here (laughs) i think it says uh imagination is more important than information or something like that but that's so true when you have more people thinking creatively thinking outside the box about a problem you end up getting a lot more creative solutions and a lot more ideas flowing in I think that's where collaboration helps a lot more than competition. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I've seen competition where the competitors are all friendly with each other. That's the way it is in the space mining community. You've got, like I mentioned, seven or eight different space mining companies, and it's a small community, so everybody knows each other, and they're all friends. So, example, you've got Peter Diamandis with Planetary Resources, and you've got Bob Richards with Moon Express. I think they're best friends. You know, they are really close friends, but they're in two space mining companies that nominally would be considered competing against each other. But because it's a very, uh, a very altruistic, very idealistic group of people, the way everybody looks at it is, hey, you know, it'd be best if we're all successful. Maybe we won't all be, but it's what we really want is for somebody to be successful at this. We want to get humanity beyond a single planet. And so it doesn't matter if if your company fails and mine or yours succeeds and mine fails, at least somebody is going to succeed and we're going to get humanity beyond a single rock. So uh, yeah, even though it's competition, everybody thinks of each other as collaborators and co-conspirators. Only if that could work in the rest of the uh, the world. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's because we have a vision for what we're trying to do. Yeah. And because we're focused on something bigger than ourselves, that's, that's what helps everybody not be so selfish. His, his imagination has meant more to him than, than all of his absolute knowledge or helped yeah. him more or something like that. Something yeah. along those lines. I, I had a feeling it had knowledge in there. Yeah. yeah. So did you ever read science fiction stories about asteroid mining, like authors like Ben Bova and stuff like that? Like, It's like all these uh, stories are actually coming true. You know... I I used to read a lot of sci-fi when I was younger, and then for many years I just didn't have time to read fiction. But more recently I've been trying to catch up on some of the classic sci-fi. However, I have never come across any story that involves actual space mining. Really? Okay, so try Ben Bova and uh, look under audible.com, and there's great audiobooks like these sci-fi 
audiobooks are fantastic and they've got great narrators so you can like listen to it on the way to work and and they talk about like space mining and mining asteroids specifically it's pretty funny it's really good stuff okay i will have to check that out thanks for the tip yeah, yeah and if, if you're gonna sign up to audible you might as well sign up through uh, grimerica.com and then uh, okay. you know everybody wins <laughs> all right <laughs> i will do that um so um oh i have I have seen a few sci-fi authors that that were touching upon some of the work that I've done. I was reading a book by Werner Vinge. It was called Children of the Sky, or no, it was called – it was A Fire Upon the Deep, actually. It was his most famous book, and he started describing this rocket landing on a planet and how they were having their rocket exhaust blowing a hole in the soil. And I, and, and I realized he is actually going to describe the rocket rocket exhaust plume effects landing <laughs> on a planet. And I and so I perked up and was really taking notes and my goodness he actually got the physics all completely right. And I had the privilege of sitting with him in a on a panel session at a conference. It was called Science Fact Meet Science Fiction. And he and I were both on the panel. He was there for the science fiction side. I was there for the science fact side. And I, I told him that and he said he was really happy that uh NASA's person who studied that gave him the uh, okay that he got the physics right. He said he spent a lot of time trying to get the physics right on that, and he sure did. So that was kind of cool. But I would like to find one that talks about space mining to see how well they do. Yeah. So um, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, you were recently recently awarded NASA Scientist of the Year or Physicist of the Year or something along those lines? Oh, well, that was the Kennedy Space Center's scientist – slash engineer of the year and that was in 2011 at the end of 2011 so yeah that was that was quite an honor i was um very surprised um and you know it's i used to always hear people say that they got some award and they said i was humbled to get the award and i always thought like oh come on you're not humbled by getting an award but i actually was now i know <laughs> i know what people mean when they say that because the work that I've done at the Space Center has been a team effort with a lot of people, and I've just been surrounded by great people, and I could have never done anything successfully if it weren't for this great team. And so when you get an award and you know deep in your heart that it was not just you, it was a team of people that made it possible, then realizing, wow, I got the award and it really should have gotten to everybody, that is humbling. So I know what it feels like now. Um, yeah, and if I uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the Silver Snoopy. What 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 exactly is the Silver Snoopy Award? Okay, so that's an award that's given by the Astronaut Corps, and it's when you have done something that has improved the safety of the astronauts, and so they they gave me that award after shuttle launch STS 128 <clears throat> excuse me uh, you may you might recall there was a shuttle launch where it blew a whole lot of bricks a couple thousand bricks out of the launch pad and that was STS 128 during that launch when it blew all those bricks out they started looking at the videos including an infrared video that we had set up and we noticed that there were chunks of something flying way up high in the air, pretty close to the shuttle as it was launching. 
And so because there were a couple thousand bricks blown out, there was and, and the bricks were all broken up in lots of the small pieces, there was a lot of concern that some of these bricks, as they were blowing out, were ricocheting, and some bricks might have flown back and hit the space shuttle. And so as I looked at these videos, I realized there is a way using physics that we can find out if those are bricks or not. There are other things that routinely blow out with every launch. For example, the solid rocket boosters have this, this solid fuel that's like a, a donut. It's got a hollow cylindr cylindrical hole right up the center. And when they light that fuel, it burns from the inside out. But because of that, you could have a bird fly right up the the solid rocket booster and start pecking inside of it and light it on fire while it's sitting there on the pad. And, and obviously, you don't want that to happen. So they would plug the hole of the booster with foam, like the kind of spray-in foam that you would get at Walmart or at Home Depot to spray in your house, to spray into the wall of your house. So that sort of foam plugs the the throat of the solid rocket boosters and every time the shuttle would launch, it would blow that foam out. And so the question was, the stuff that we see blowing up high, is that foam, which means it's just the normal stuff that blows out, or is it bricks? And so what I proposed is let's get multiple camera views and let's do some analysis of the, of the videos to calculate the three-dimensional trajectory of this object and then let's use ballistics equations and calculate how how quickly that thing is decelerating and based on the deceleration of it we can calculate the density of the object and then we can tell if it's brick material or foam material and so this brilliant application scientist dr john lane one of my main collaborators he's he's really brilliant he within like two days he wrote software based on software he'd already written on other projects he wrote the software to combine multiple film cameras that are not even synchronized you know so the the frames of the two video cameras are not taking pictures at the same time as each other so he wrote software that interpolates the frames of the two different cameras to synchronize them together and then from the multiple views of this object, calculate a three-dimensional trajectory, X, Y, and Z versus time. And then <clears throat> he handed me this data that he calculated, and then I did ballistics analysis, and we were able to show that the density of the object exactly matched solid rocket booster foam, and it was thousands of times less dense than brick material. And so this whole project took place in the course of three days. We had to we had to solve it before the shuttle landed. So we got it done in three days and definitively showed that this was not ricocheting bricks and therefore it was safe to land the shuttle. And so that was what I got that award for. That's that's uh, that's just fantastic. Um, that sounds yeah, like again, complicated software. <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, again, I, I got to point out that this is one of those humbling things where you get an award and you know that other people were involved that should have got the award too. And John Lane really did 50% of the work on that project. So I'm going to give a shout out to John for that. Okay. We'll, we'll post that in the, in the show notes for sure as well. Yeah. And while we're on the topic of you getting kudos for stuff, didn't you have a press interview today? Well, there was a press release. Yeah. I got interviewed by one of the reporters at the Kennedy space center. And just today the 
the release came out and it's about an article that we wrote. So I, I, um, a few years ago, I, I was uh, working with Rob Mueller, looking at the soil and all the different planets and moons in the whole solar system, thinking about it. And Rob and I both started getting fascinated by the idea of having an industry that fills the entire solar system so that we can go to a truly solar system type civilization. And so we got inspired by this and and decided that we wanted to figure out how to make that happen, which which uh, kind of brings us to, to this interview today. Um, why do we want to do space mining and why is it so important? So we wrote this. So I, I went to the 100-year Starship Conference a few years ago, and <clears throat> and I tried to explain to them that it doesn't make sense to build a Starship to go to another star until after you have developed the technologies for using space resources because instead of building the starship from stuff that you're launching from the earth you can just build it from stuff that you get in space and you don't have to launch it it's going to be a lot cheaper and most people say well yeah but then you got to stop and hold up the process to go develop all this technology to to extract metal from soil and to do all this manufacturing in space. And that's a big delay. And so what I tried to tell them at the Starship Conference was, well, you're going to have to do this anyways, because when you send people to another star, they're going to have to live somehow when they get there. And so they're going to need all these technologies when they get there. So if you're going to have to develop all these technologies anyways, you might as well save the cost of building the Starship and, and use the technologies in our solar system first. And the whole program becomes a lot more affordable. But And it was really frustrating to me because I went there and I tried to give this message, but I didn't feel like it went over very well. And people didn't really respond to the message. And that was when I realized, well, you know, scientists and engineers, they need to see it quantitatively. Words are just words, but when you show graphs and numbers, then it's then it's like you've really proven your case. And so I went back to the Space Center and I, I said, Rob, we need to model this and do it quantitatively. And so I came up with a way to computer model the development of industry in the solar system and and uh, spent a couple of months working on it in my spare time. And we got the computer model working and we developed a strategy for starting up industry in space. And we were able to show that you can actually start industry for a, a like a third of the cost of the International Space Station. You can get a fully self-sustaining industry near the Earth in space. And you can do this using lunar resources or you can do this using asteroid resources. And so we wrote up the paper, explained how this would be done, how it would be so much cheaper than all the other methods that people have proposed and got it published. And so that's what the interview was about with this reporter from NASA. They were they were writing an article about how asteroid resources could revolutionize the state of human civilization. We could we could solve economic problems, we could solve environmental problems, we could solve energy problems. We could really jump beyond all these challenges, all these global challenges that we're dealing with today. And um, so the the article that he wrote just came out on the NASA website this morning. 
So, yeah, that was kind of exciting. In fact, that's why I was – I mentioned a few minutes ago that I got emails from three different space mining companies today, and that was what the, all that emailing was about. Wow, that's just – that's fascinating. Oh. So, I, like, I guess people people don't even realize the, the benefit of be, being able to mine something even as simple as water in space, how much of, of a difference that makes in, in when you're taking off. Oh, sure. Well, there's a, a lot of requirement to have water in space. For example, right now, we know that we cannot do a Mars mission because we don't have any way to keep the humans safe from the radiation dosage that they would get. When you fly away from the Earth, when you get outside of the atmosphere, when you get outside of the magnetic field, you're exposed to a lot more radiation than what you're getting down here on the surface of the Earth. And in fact, for a Mars mission, when you're in space for that long, that far from the sun, you're getting exposed to too much radiation and the risk of getting cancer or getting leukemia during your lifetime is raised up to an unacceptable level. And so right now, we would not be allowed to do a Mars mission, even if we had everything ready to go. The, the medical people would not let the astronauts do the trip. But we can solve that problem with water because water is one of the very best radiation shields against cosmic radiation. It's such a good radiation shield because it has a lot of hydrogen in it. It's H2O. There's two hydrogens for every oxygen. And so it's a very hydrogen-rich material. And hydrogen is the best, the best material for stopping cosmic radiation. So... For example, if we were to bring back to Earth orbit or to lunar orbit a 7-meter diameter carbonaceous chondrite, which typically has 20% water by mass, that would be enough water to provide the radiation shielding for five human expeditions to Mars so that we could actually do the Mars missions. And that much water, we could launch the water from the Earth, but that much water in space is uh, it's a lot of mass to launch. And people have said famously that an ounce of water in space is worth more than an ounce of gold on the Earth. So try to imagine how many tons and tons of gold, that's how much value that water would have. And we would be using it as a radiation shield. So getting water from an asteroid is one of the ways to solve that problem and make Mars missions possible. I used oh. to work in a gold mine, so. Um, well, Mars One, I guess Mars One is going for it anyway. Have you have you have you heard of Mars One? Sure, I've looked at their website and I've read their material. Yep. What uh, What's your Do you have an opinion or? Well, I I uh, I love what they're doing. I I don't want to say that I endorse it. I'm not allowed to endorse anything since I <laughs> I do work for the government. Um, so I'm not going to endorse it. Um, but personally, I think it's exciting and it's it's really cool. Um, you know, spaceflight is risky, though, just like ocean voyages were risky several hundred years ago. And not every colony was successful. You know, there were some colonies where the people came over to America and then the colony disappeared or most of the people died. So it, it may be that we're in for some risky times during these early stages of colonizing space. But I, I think there are things we can do to make it a lot less risky. I think if, 
if we do it right, we can make sure nobody dies. But um, the risk is there of not doing it right. Yeah. So you mentioned in one of your blogs, you're talking about the water um, in the universe being so, or in our solar system being so abundant. So how, how long has it been since we've, we've known this? Well, we've known that for a long time, actually. Well, let me, let me clarify. We've known that water is abundant in our solar system for a long time. But the vast majority of the water is out beyond the asteroid belt. Like, for example, the four biggest moons of Jupiter, those four moons have a billion times more water than the Earth does because a large quantity of their bulk is actually frozen water, whereas the Earth is rock, their water, frozen, solid. Mm. Um, so most of the water in our solar system is way out there beyond Jupiter and the Oort cloud and the Kuiper belt. But just recently, we discovered that there's actually tons and tons of water on the moon. When the Elcross mission crashed into the south pole of the moon, it blew up a cloud, and NASA had several spacecraft looking at the cloud that was blown up, and it was a huge quantity of water, as well as carbon molecules and ammonia and a lot of other things. Um, furthermore, we've made a lot of progress in identifying near-Earth asteroids. There are some Goob, uh, excuse me, there are some YouTube videos that show this very dramatically. If you, if you look at uh, YouTube search for asteroids, you'll almost certainly find the video where it shows the discovery of asteroids from some certain year up to the present. And as, uh, as space telescopes and ground-based telescopes have been looking, we found more and more asteroids. So now we realize that we're surrounded by all these space rocks, and a lot of them are in near-Earth orbits. And a lot of these asteroids have a huge water content. So uh, it's in the form of hydrated minerals. So when I say water, it's not necessarily H2O. It might be OH hanging off of other uh, molecules of, of rock. But it's in a, you can easily get it out in the form of water by heating it. Hmm. So um, there's a lot of water on asteroids. There's a lot of water on the moon. So surprisingly, there's a lot more water in space close to the Earth than we previously understood. What about Mars? Oh, Mars has a huge amount of water. Mars has had probably an ocean on its northern surface, northern part of the planet was a, a northern ocean perhaps at one time and there is there are lots of rivers and catastrophic outflow channels as well as gullies that give the evidence of sapping from groundwater and when phoenix landed it blew away a few centimeters of soil and exposed the ice that was very close to the surface at that northern latitude the polar caps of mars have a lot of water in them. So there's water all over Mars. There's no problem getting water if you're far enough, far enough from the equator on Mars. If you're real close to the equator, you'd have to drill very, very deep to get to the water. Hmm. But the higher latitudes of Mars, there's no problem accessing water. Have you, uh, have you seen or, or read anything um, about the seeps or the stains on, on Mars? Well, it's been a, quite a few years since I've focused on Mars. We were focusing on Mars about 10 years ago. And then during the Constellation program, we've been focusing on the moon. And right now I'm focusing on asteroids. 
there are others in NASA who have been focusing on Mars this other this entire time, but it's not been my main focus. So I'm not uh, I'm not up on the latest science of of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just I just asked because our, our first ge- guest actually, uh, Mr. Ephraim Palermo, he had uh, he spent back in '99 and 2000 something like a year or two years scouring. Uh, scouring mars mars surveyor i think was it mars global surveyor back then sure yeah i think he, he spent uh a couple of years scouring photos uh photos um that with a 56k modem uh, and found these these seeps on mars and wrote a paper so i was right. just well, well i remember that it was during the mars global surveyor mission that uh, that these seeps were first being discovered and i remember reading papers about it so yeah, that's pretty well accepted now. I don't think there's any question that there's a lot of water on Mars, and even liquid water if you look in the right places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I read something not long ago in the bottom of a crater or something like that. But um, back to space asteroids. What's the the what's the like end date? Like, what's I guess the best possible date that we could say reap the, reap the benefits of um, of your research. Uh, you mean the benefits of using resources in space? Yeah, like what? What do you think? Your when do you? I guess suppose you'll get your first asteroid. Well, so if if uh, if we get the go ahead to do this, then there will have to be a few years of looking, prospecting first. The reason why we have to spend some time prospecting is that. We're looking for a rather small asteroid. You know, the big ones are quite easy to find, but the smaller ones, they, they're they only visible for a few days as they whiz by the Earth because they don't reflect as much light. And the kind of asteroid we want, carbonaceous chondrites, would be the best. Those are very dark, and so they don't reflect very much sunlight. And so they're, we're looking for one that's small and very dark, so it's hard to see. And furthermore... We want to find one that can be nudged into orbit around the moon. And a gigantic rock like that requires a lot of energy to change its orbit. So we are limited. We cannot find one that requires a big change in its orbit. We need to find an asteroid that requires only a very small change. And that means it's one that's already almost in the same orbit as the Earth. And so that means... Well, let's say if there was an orbit that was an ex- an asteroid that was in exactly the same orbit as the Earth, that would mean it would go around the sun once every 365.24 days, and that would mean it would always stay exactly the same distance from the Earth, and it would never go by. We'd never find it. So we can't find one that's in exactly the same orbit. We need it to be slightly different orbit so that it passes the Earth every now and then. But if it passes the Earth too too often. That means it's in too different, it's too far different of an orbit. It would cost too much energy to bring it back. So we need an asteroid that goes whizzing by the Earth about once every five or ten years. That way it goes by often enough to see it, but it's um, not too often so that it's almost the same orbit as the Earth. So what this means is we're going to be looking for asteroids that go whizzing by the Earth. And we're going to, as they go by, we're going to calculate their trajectory. And we want to find one that we can predict is going to come whizzing by again in another five or so years. 
If we find one like that, the right size, the right type, the right orbit, then we can send the mission out to rendezvous with it, nudge it slightly, and just bring it in to, uh, to do a, a gravity assist whipping around the moon. That would cause the moon to steal some of the energy from the asteroid so that then the asteroid is trapped in the gravitational influence of the Earth-Moon system. And so the asteroid would then go into orbit around the moon. And so, so uh, there has to be a period of several years of prospecting and waiting for the asteroid to come back around for the second pass. Now, we know that we're going to find asteroids that meet those requirements because we've looked for, we have found a lot of other asteroids of other sizes and other trajectories. And we, we know quite a bit about the statistics of asteroids. And so even though we haven't found the specific asteroids that we want, we know statistically that they must be there. And so it's just a matter of spending the time doing due diligence, looking for them and finding them. Once we, uh, once we pick an asteroid, send a spacecraft off to rendezvous with it, that mission alone is going to be about another three years. And the reason why is because, as I've said before, it's a lot of fuel to bring a gigantic chunk of rock into one orbit to another orbit. And so we have to use the most efficient kind of rocket that's available, and that would be an electric propulsion rocket. So in this case, we're talking about using a solar electric propulsion. What that means is that the spacecraft would be collecting sunlight, using the sunlight to create electrical energy, and then using a high voltage to strip the electrons off of an atom like neon, for example, or, z or uh, xenon. And then it would, so it's ionizing the atoms, this noble gas, and then the electric field rips, uh, blows the, um, accelerates the ions out the back of the spaceship at high velocity. The reason you want to use that kind of propulsion system is because you get the most thrust for the amount of fuel. And, and uh, in other words, it's the highest specific impulse that's available. And so it makes it a very affordable mission to go out and move such a large chunk of rock around. The, the downside of that kind of a rocket, although it get, it's very efficient, it's very low thrust. And so you have to apply the thrust to the asteroid for a long time in order to slightly nudge it into the right orbit. So it's going to take about, I don't know the exact numbers, I forgot, but it's like one or two years to go out to the asteroid and then one or two years to bring it back to uh, tweak it so that it comes into the Earth's orbit. So it's about a three-year mission. Once you've accomplished that, then it's going to take a little while to settle the asteroid down into the right orbit around the moon. And, and then eventually you send the astronauts up to go rendezvous with it to, to, um, to prospect the asteroid to have some people doing geology, studying it, getting all the planetary science that we want from it. Now, we haven't really talked a lot yet about what to do after that. And, and um, one thing we could do that we need to talk about, when I say we, I'm talking about the, the space community. We need to talk about what are we going to do with that asteroid next. 
One idea is you could give it away to a space mining company. Another is we could collaboratively mine the asteroid. Can um, I have it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, actually, that's a great legal question, too. What does have mean in space? <laughs> Who's yeah. allowed to own it? Yeah. But um, what I think would be fantastic would be to mine that asteroid and use the entire buffalo, use the metal, use the silicates, use the water, use the carbon, and so make plastic and do 3D printing, make metal, purify the metal and do 3D printing with the metal, use the, um, the water in it. You can electrolyze the water to make hydrogen and oxygen for rocket propellant, or you can use the water for radiation shielding. So I think it would be fantastic to do a technology demonstration of space mining and get all those technologies working. But now we're talking about the at the very least, it's probably going to be 10 years from now before you can start mining it. And um, and that's uh, that's maybe a, that's maybe a little bit uh, optimistic because there's more technology development and more mission planning that has to happen up front before you do those things. Wow, that's just amazing. So <clears throat> so you would do the, that mining like right in situ on the asteroid, kind of right through robotics or whatever other means. Um, it's possible. Yeah, we have not actually worked on the details about asteroid mining yet. We have spent yeah. a lot of time working on lunar mining and Martian mining. Right. But the asteroid mining is is a new tech a new territory. We have we have done some work on it, but not as much as the other types of mining. Yeah. Would we would we be able to see that orbiting uh, the moon? Like through telescopes or whatever? Like would that be visible uh -huh. enough? A big enough telescope and I yeah, it's not a big rock. It's a, a small, very dark rock, like a piece of coal. So you're talking about a seven-meter piece of coal that's hundreds of thousands of miles away. Yeah, it's quarter space. million miles away. Yeah, so it's pretty, uh, you wouldn't really be able to see it, though. Yeah. With a telescope, I'm sure you could, the right kind of telescope. Like when you say lunar mining, are you talking robots or are you talking uh, people? Well, it could be both. I think that the the main concept is using robots. You can have humans there working cooperatively with the robots too, and there are certain advantages to that. For example, if something breaks, then it's really helpful to have a human there. We don't have robots with the capabilities of humans yet. We will someday, but we're not there yet. It's going to be several more decades before we can have humanoid robots that are nearly as capable as us. But uh, for now, the, the main idea is to have robots doing the mining and maybe have humans visiting to do repairs and to do 
investigation, trying to figure out what's breaking and figure out how to do it better and trying to do the science. So my lab has, the engineers in my lab who focus on the robotics, they've been working on robots to go do the mining on the moon. So we have one robot that you can find on the internet if you search for it. The name is Razor, spelled R-A-S-S-O-R. And it's a little low-gravity robot that drives around and mines using a, a unique concept that, that Rob Mueller and some of the guys in my lab developed. Huh. But I guess, ideally, I guess it would probably be more cost-effective just to mine an asteroid because if you go to the mine, I mean, it's I think it's only like, what, one-sixth the gravity, but you're still looking at having to, to propel it back to Earth. Sure. Now, if you're mining on the moon and you develop, you're getting water, then you can develop the propellant you need to launch off the moon. So that's a part of the process that you don't have to pay for from Earth. Uh, so uh, it's not as bad as some people might say, but there definitely is an advantage of mining in zero gravity when you try to get the mined products away from the asteroid, you really don't need hardly any fuel at all to do that. So that is a benefit. Gravity's not all bad, though. There are certain certain processes that are benefited by having gravity. If you're trying to refine metals, for example, sometimes gravity is important in metal refining to separate different material streams. So if you want to do this process in zero G, you're going to have to come up with different methods than what we do right now on the Earth. So um, I always tell people that I'm really glad that there are space mining companies that want to do it both ways. There are several companies that want to mine the moon. There's Moon Express, Shackleton Energy Corp, Astrobotic Technologies. Then there are companies that want to mine asteroids. There's Planetary Resources, Deep Space Industries, Stott Space, and several others. So. I, I, I'm glad that they're trying it both ways because we're going to find out by, by trial and error, which is the best way, uh, and learn what works and what doesn't work. And I think they'll both be successful. I actually think that there may be benefits to having mining both places. Yeah, for sure. Do you guys have a plan in case you find fossils? <laughs> um, well, you know, uh, no, I don't think we have a plan. <laughs> or, or ruins? Or ruins? What would you do if you found ruins? Yeah. Well, we would probably stop mining. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be as important as whatever else we could do there at that point. Um, well, you know, I, 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 I really believe that we're going to find microfossils. I think we're going to find bacteria fossils or live bacteria on Mars. And part of the reason I believe that is because Mars is really not so separated from the Earth as people think. I live in Florida, and here in Florida, if you go out and dig a, dig a hole in a field and walk away from it and then come back 10 years later, it'll be full of water from rain and from the groundwater seeping in, and you'll be able to fish that pond and catch bass in it. And I always ask students when I speak in schools, how did bass get into a pond like that? And I've only heard one student ever get the answer right. Do you guys, do you think you can figure it out? Uh. Dig a hole in the ground in Florida. How did bass get 
get into it. You dig it in the, and it's already a pond. <laughs> no, no. Any any hole you dig in Florida will get bass in it eventually. Is it is it evolution through microbes? Just like that that oh. fast? Nope, nope, it's not that. The most creative answer I heard once was a student said, is it hurricanes blowing them in? <laughs> that was kind of a nightmare idea. But no, the, the reason why is because bass eggs stick to duck feathers. And so the ducks are going from pond to pond and they're transporting the, the eggs. Well, there's something similar that happens in our solar system. You've got asteroids and comets hitting all the planets and the moons routinely throughout solar system history. Just look at the moon and see all the craters and you'll see how many times the moon has been struck. Well, when this happens, for a big enough asteroid impact, it blows off a certain amount of rock completely off the planet or completely off the moon into space. And that rock floats around in the orbit around the sun for a while until randomly it gets too close to a planet and then it falls down and lands on the planet. And you can calculate how many tons of Mars rock there are on the Earth. And likewise, you can calculate how many tons of Earth rock are, are sitting there on Mars. And so every rock that leaves Earth has bacteria in it. And so the question is, when that bacteria landed on Mars in the past, did it ever find good conditions when it could live there? Now, people have turned that question around, and people have said, well, what if life was on Mars first? Uh, panspermia. Panspermia, yeah. Yeah, maybe life came from Earth. It came from Mars to Earth. So, um, but pretty much uh, the solar system is not isolated. It's not completely isolated ecospheres. There is some connection between all the ecospheres in our solar system. And, and uh, well, actually, we only know of one planet for sure that has life on it. But it's very possible that there has been life on other places in our solar system. And if it ever found the right conditions, it might have lived there. It's even possible there could be life. Uh, I heard now on on places like uh, moons of moons of Jupiter, Europa. Or... Oh, absolutely! You know, some of those moons in the outer solar system have liquid oceans covered by ice, and so it's possible that there could be life underneath the ice living in those oceans. So what about the rogue planets? Like um, now that they're talking about these rogue planets, um, do you ever get into that being into, you know, searching for asteroids? Well, that's um, pretty far out there. I think that that we're not going to be able to have the energy to go out and visit rogue planets for, for a long time, not until we've got a fully matured solar system civilization would we be able to go beyond our solar system. But... Um, it's interesting. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how far away they are. I don't know that it would be a great environment because if it's so far away from a star, there wouldn't really be enough energy on one of those planets. Yeah, and I but, don't think there'd really be much point you could when you can just grab little chunks of inner planet from right around your own your own planet. Yeah. And by the way, that reminds me of something that I, I think is kind of funny. If you look at these Hollywood movies about the aliens taking over, the um, the aliens always want to conquer the Earth for our resources. <laughs> like, remember that movie Battle Los Angeles? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was an entertaining movie. I enjoyed it. But 
it bothered me when they they were showing this planetary scientist on television and he was explaining from his great wealth of knowledge why the aliens are trying to conquer the earth and i remember it so clearly because it really bothered me he says the aliens want the earth because earth has one thing that you can't get anywhere else in the solar system and that's water in liquid form and so I thought, wow, so these aliens, they can build starships and they can travel between the stars, but they can't melt a comet. Yeah. <laughs> can't melt a... You know, you know, that movie was based on an actual uh, case, right? A UFO case in Los Angeles back in 1942, I think it was. Oh, I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually like a real, there's uh, real oh, yeah, pictures that's, from that. That was and... during the wartime, right? When they yeah. were shooting at something. Yeah. They were shooting at this thing in the sky, like thousands of rounds of ammunition in the sky. Oh. It's pretty, pretty fascinating. Wow. We, uh, we, yeah. We like the subject of UFOs. Actually, our next guest uh, this weekend is Robbie Graham. And he, he does this, uh, this research on Hollywood and how it affects ufology and all this. So he, he goes deep into the whole uh, Hollywood Hollywood aspect of UFOs and alien visitation and all that stuff. So that's fascinating. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so I I became interested in the idea of whether there is life, and I'm sure you've heard the of the Fermi paradox. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I became interested in this, especially after we started looking at mining in the solar system, because we realized there's actually a billion times or more of every resource in our solar system than there is here on the Earth. Mm -hmm. And so if you can get your civilization off of a single planet and really start to use your solar system, take ownership of your solar system and really, really occupy and live in your solar system instead of just on a planet, what this does is it gives you a billion times more ability to do things than what we have right now. And if you've got a billion times the ability to do stuff, then building interstellar starships is not a problem. And you could very easily build traversing world ships to go to other stars, or you could build gigantic energy systems to, to fling things to other stars. So the idea of going out and colonizing other stars suddenly becomes feasible like mm -hmm. if we only if you think about what we're capable of we're a, we're a global civilization merely and a global civilization really does not have the ability to colonize a galaxy and and so it seems like well you know what can we do in space there's nowhere to go well it only seems that way because we're still just a global civilization when you go to be, to the next level and become a solar system civilization now you really can do things that presently are only dreams. Yeah. And so it is possible to colonize the whole galaxy. Is that a They're type two? Type yeah, two civilization, so, they call it? Right, yeah. So Kardashev, the Russian physicist, is, uh, is known for, among other things, for coming up with this classification system where he was looking for, for uh, radio signals from space and for signs of intelligence out there. And so he pointed out that we shouldn't assume that, that we shouldn't do what Hollywood does. We shouldn't assume that any system out there in the solar system, any aliens out there in the solar system are, are just a little bit smarter than us. You know, in Hollywood, the aliens are always two or three times smarter than us. 
but they always have one area where they're really stupid so we can defeat them. <laughs> but um, there's no real reason to assume that they're limited to just two or three times our intelligence. You know, they could be a trillion times smarter than us because they've probably already had these revolutions in computing. And and so Kardashev was pointing out that that if you had a civilization that uses the energy of its entire star, it could be vastly different than what we have here on our planet. Or if you have a civilization that uses the energy of an entire galaxy, that's another dramatic change. And so the signals you might find coming from space aren't necessarily going to be the type of signals that we would put out here from the Earth. And so he classified a type one as a global civilization, a type two as a solar system civilization, and a type three as a galactic civilization. Uh, what I've done when I talk to people about space mining, I try to give people the idea that this is really doable. You know, we really can do this. And the evidence I give them is we've already leaped beyond several types of civilizations in our past. We used to have continental type civilizations and we had to leap across the ocean and become a global civilization. So I've tried to tell people that a type minus one, I'm sorry, a type zero would be a continental civilization. And going back even further, when civilization was first invented, we were using, our ancestors were using a, a unique energy source. They were using sunlight, falling on cereal crops that grow in the flood valleys of rivers, in the silt deposits in the Nile or in the Tigris-Euphrates or the Yellow River or the Indus River. And so when humans first figured out how to do this using slave labor and oxen to farm the silt deposits, they rapidly developed cities and these cities flourished wherever there were silt deposits, but they really didn't go beyond the silt deposits of these river basins. And so it took a leap of technology to develop the logistics structures to transport the food across the, the boundaries to the other parts of the continent. So, for example, by the time of the Roman Empire, the people in Rome were being fed by barges coming across the Mediterranean from the Nile. And so... I've tried to say, well, a, a silt type, a silt based river valley civilization would be a type minus one. So humanity has already leapt barriers at the ending of their world several times. And what we're talking about doing is just repeating something we already have a history of being successful at. So we just want to leap the next barrier and go to the next type of civilization. And we, we're, we've been successful at doing this in the past and we can do it again. Well, that's a great way to look at it. I've never thought of it like that. Yeah. So so I did get really interested in Fermi's paradox. Why is it we're not seeing all these radio signals from space? Why why is our why is our galaxy not a Star Wars galaxy? Mm -hmm. You know, why is it that we don't already know everybody? Why is it that we don't have people going back and forth from all these different planets already where we all know that we're all here? That's right. a profoundly interesting question. So then what, what do you think about, um, you know, unidentified aerial objects flying around? I mean, you know, the way, uh, like I would say it's a, it's a legitimate phenomenon that requires more study. Uh, you know, I don't claim to, to have any answers on what it is or anything like that. But have you ever looked into that? Have you ever been interested in actually learning about some of the cases that are out there? Um, you know, I, I don't want to speculate too much because it's not my field and I haven't really studied it very much. Mm -hmm. I will, I'll just say I have a, a friend who, 
who reported a something he saw. I don't want to tell his story without his permission, but it was a very interesting story that he told me, which does give one pause. And um, <laughs> my wife and I saw a phenomenon time. We did see uh, f- formation flying across the sky at a constant rate from horizon to horizon. And it could have been military. It could have been something in Earth orbit. I don't know. But it was very spooky at the time that we saw it. Was it triangle uh, shape? No, it was a straight line. Four lights hmm. in a straight line. Orange color, like a burnt orange color. Uh-huh. So we immediately went in and Googled it and found out that a lot of other people have seen similar things. Um, but... Um, yeah, it could have been satellites or something military. I have no idea what it was. But have you heard of the Sputnik app? No. It's a an app. I think you, I don't know if you can get it on BlackBerry. I know you can get it on iPhone and Android. But it like uh, it calculates your position and tells you uh, when satellites are going by that you can that you might be able to catch in the sunlight, and it'll tell you when the the space station's coming by. It tells you the exact time and what kind of where to look to look for it. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. Well, so, so um, yeah, other than that, though, I really don't want to speculate about it because I just haven't looked into it. Yeah. I have spent a lot of time thinking about about the so-called great silence. That's what Dave Brin, the, <laughs> the scientist and writer, calls it. Um, and is there life out there? And, and why are we not getting signals all the time? Yeah. So as a scientist, I think that's something we can talk about a little bit more from, you know, unless you go out and interview a lot of people about the phenomena they've experienced, which I haven't done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's nice to hear you've got at least a kind of non-judgmental open mind about it. I mean, that's what cracks me up is when you hear about the Fermi paradox and the great silence, and yet if you look deep enough into it, there is stuff going on that's really unexplainable. Well, so I'll say I think that there could be any number of explanations for the Fermi paradox, and um, personally, I think that we should dis- we should all agree that in retrospect, it's not surprising that there's this great silence, and the reason I say that is because there is one solution to it that it may not be the correct solution, but even if there if there isn't any other solution this one would still be a, a it would still be a necessary solution people have talked about this thing called the singularity have you heard about this oh yeah yeah so it's the idea that we're about to go through a computer revolution where we're going to have vastly more powerful computers and they will be augmenting our our human intelligence so that we can we can do a lot more and so if if you think about what we've done as humans in the past 10,000 years, going from very crude stone farming all the way to flying in space and talking about space mining, we did that in 10,000 years. So imagine if a civilization had a million-year head start on us. How far advanced would they be? Mm-hmm. So the way I look at it is the chances of finding somebody that's right at our level is so vanishingly small we really shouldn't expect to find any life out there at our level we are transient you know we're at a very transient stage and so i think it's highly probable that you i don't know if there's life out there but if there is life out there i think it's highly probable that it would be bacterial and um 
very low intelligence. And there may be life out there that's extremely high intelligence, far beyond us. But I think the chances of somebody being right where we are is almost vanishingly small. So in my personal opinion, I don't think Hollywood has the right vision of it. I don't think that the aliens are going to be just slightly smarter than us. So, um, so therefore, if there is life out there and if they have noticed us, I think they're probably so intelligent that we really wouldn't expect to be able to catch them. <laughs> um, I think that uh, if they wanted us to see them, or if they were just being sloppy, they didn't care too much, then maybe you could see them. But I, I really don't expect that they would be using radio signals. No, until the, until the singularity happens. Actually, our, uh, our third podcast was with an author, and his book was called uh, The UFO Singularity. And it was Micah Hanks, and he addressed, uh, you know, how singularity will affect uh, the way we measure things and see things, and especially in terms of uh, ufology. So it's it's interesting that you brought that up. Yeah. So so I don't know. I I'm I'm one of these people that says that I don't know if there's any life anywhere in the cosmos other than here on the Earth, but if there is life out there in the cosmos. Maybe there's intelligent life. Maybe there's not. I really don't know. I, it's not the area that I focused on, so I can't add too much to the discussion of that. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for telling us your, your sighting, though. It's, it's uh, interesting to hear that. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of spooky at the time. <laughs> it, it made me feel like I was being watched. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, Maybe you, you were. <laughs> yeah, it was to get inside. <laughs> it w- it was Skunkworks saying, "Who's this Swampworks guy?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose uh, on that note, we we should wrap things up. Um, I'd like to like to really thank you for coming on. Uh, it's been a great conversation, absolutely a phenomenal interview. Um, thanks a lot, uh, Phil. It's been fantastic. Well, thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun talking with you guys. Yeah, do you have anything else you would like to uh, like to say to our audience or anything else you'd like to, to plug? Yeah, where can, where can people find you? Well, if they want to see my personal blog, it's www.philipmetzger.com. And Philip is spelled with one L. So it's P-H-I-L-I-P-M-E-T-Z-G-E-R.com. And then click on the blog button. Um And I would like to tell everybody out there in the audience that we've got exciting times ahead. I'm very excited about where we are in technology for space. I think we're on the verge of amazing things happening. And I think that uh, the young people that are listening right now, they're going to get to do these things. They're going to be the ones that are out there mining on asteroids and mining on Mars. So I'm very happy to be living at this time that we get to see this happen and and make it happen. I totally agree with you and what I love about about your blog and about your attitude is just the positive uh the, your positive attitude. It's just I love that. Thanks. Appreciate that. Yeah, and we'll we'll make sure we'll link to uh to your blog and your and your Twitter account and, and all that in our show notes as well. I think your your Twitter is at Phil yeah, it's Phil at till seven seven seven. Correct. P H I L T I L L. Yeah, and triple seven. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Um, 
So thanks a lot for coming on, and uh, you can come back anytime. Okay, great. our interview with uh, Dr. Philip Metzger um, from Kennedy Space Center down in Florida and and I gotta say that I was absolutely blown away that guy blew my socks off I'm kind of speechless yeah it was yeah. it was it was great it went it went better than I could have dreamed of so yeah. we definitely got a, a big thanks out to Philip Metzger again yeah um, it definitely ran longer than we expected so so it was uh, a great interview again you guys can find him at uh, philipmetzger.com or at philtill777 on Twitter um, and we'll have all that in the show notes as well yeah this guy was more than a, a NASA scientist I mean this guy is on the leading edge he's like a pioneer in space mining I mean this guy's going to be involved in this huge in a big way coming up I can't wait to see what's going to happen in 5 to 10 years yeah and uh, he's going to be at the forefront of it I'm sure and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and get his uh his partner, he was talking about there, Rob Mueller. I'm going to see if I can't track him down and get him on the program for you guys too. So, Yeah, I was I was going to, you know, I wanted to throw all these kind of conspiratorial questions at him and all that, but he, it was just so fascinating listening to all this, like, you know, this real uh, science fiction turned into fact stuff that they're working with. I, I just wanted to let him go. Yep. So, and other news, we've got RPJ is going to come back on with us before the Scotty Roberts interview in a couple of weeks. So, uh, that's good. He's going to be a constant figure here at Grand America. I think it's, it's going well. It's a good partnership. So, oh yeah. And I, uh, you know, I talked to, uh, I emailed, um, the head of psychology there at, uh, Saybrook university and they're in, they're in the process of firing up a Kickstarter. Really? Yeah, and he's going to let me know when they do so that we can uh, advertise it on the site. So. Great, and Grammarica will kick in a little donation to that. Yep, for sure. But uh, on that note, I suppose we might as well shut her down. The interview ran, ran pretty long. So. All right, well, thanks for a great chat, Darren, and uh, thank you very much to Philip Metzger. Yep, and thanks to all you guys for listening. As usual, you'll find everything in the show notes. Uh, as well as all the music you heard. Um, so we'll see you when we see you. Ciao. Yeah.